You'd think the government would be the most skilled buyer of office supplies in the world. It has the most offices, after all. But a recent attempt at a blanket purchase agreement landed the General Services Administration into a big, fat protest with Office Depot. Smith Pactor McWhorter, a procurement attorney, Joe Petrillo, has the details. And golly, buying a BPA's worth of office goods for the Pentagon should be easy, shouldn't it? Tell us what happened here, Joe. Well, this illustrates some of the problems that the government runs into when, as they frequently have been doing, they create larger and larger contracts by grouping together things that were done separately and and putting them together in a single vehicle of some kind. And here, this problem arose under the issue under a program that GSA has called 4PL for Fourth Party Logistics. The basic idea is that GSA runs this program under the multiple award schedules, also known as the federal supply schedules, and it has a, a separate schedule for a group of contractors that basically act as intermediaries, bundling commercial item offerings in other schedules so that the the government can go to a single source and buy multiple items. In this instance, they were issuing a solicitation for a blanket purchase agreement under their 4PL program to handle the supply of hardware, industrial, and office supply items at eight very large DOD installations. So in order to figure out how to award this contract and compete it successfully, GSA selected a market basket of 200 items. It went through historical data, and it found what it thought were the 200 items that were ordered most frequently. Yeah, that sounds like trouble right from the outset, since you say industrial and office supplies. That sounds like a warning. These things don't mix in terms of supplier base. Well, yeah, there is that issue that lurks here as well, as we'll see in the office depot filed a protest. And uh, one of the issues they raised was, well, this has got too much uh, hardware industrial mixed in with the office supplies. That issue was unsuccessful. GAO is not going to keep agencies from putting things together if it reflects their needs. But in this instance, they ran into problems also with this market basket. Office Depot noticed that only 15 of the 200 items were office supplies. The other 185 were hardware or industrial. So they filed a protest with GAO. The the basis Uh, here was that Office Depot doesn't carry these items, and therefore they probably couldn't bid. Is that why they protested? The Ford PL contractors obtain items from other GSA schedule contracts. So the fact that they don't ordinarily offer those in the commercial marketplace isn't necessarily determinative. They're going to be able to find a source. Here, the the problem, though, that GSA confronted in constructing this market basket was the uh, amount of data that it looked at and the type of the data. It had good data for all of these eight locations for the hardware and industrial items. Of the eight locations, five of them already had 4PL BPAs, basic blanket purchase agreements, which provided good historical data in, in those instances. The other three had other data available from DOD databases. So they could get a pretty good handle on how much hardware, industrial items, what kind of items were going to be ordered. This was not the case for the office supplies, though. They had good historical data for only one of those eight locations. That one also had a 4PL BPA 
But in that instance, you know, that one was restricted to office supplies. So that particular BPA provided good historical data. There were partial data for three others, but one of the three only reported sales of $4 a year. And if you believe a government can run on $4 worth of office supplies in a year, or anyone for that matter, uh, that that doesn't seem credible. Sure. And the other four, they they basically had no data. Uh, they, they, they reviewed no historical data. So uh, given the state of the data, uh, it wasn't surprising that the market basket they constructed only had... Uh, you know, 15 out of 200 items in the office supply category. And ordinarily, the government gets a lot of dis- discretion about how their needs are defined, how they construct evaluation criteria. You know, they have a lot of flexibility and ability to do these things in different ways. But here, the evaluation criteria seemed too unrelated to what was actually being purchased. The market basket of 200 was going to be used both in the price evaluation, try to figure out you know, whether the pricing was, was good, and in the technical evaluation to try to figure out if the, if the offerors could offer and supply exactly what the government needed in those categories. We're speaking with Joe Petrillo. He's a procurement attorney with Smith, Pactor, McWhorter. And just one more question on the market basket or the basket of goods was the lack of data, meaning that the basket itself wasn't representative of what might be needed or that the basket didn't represent reasonable pricing expectations? It's the first of those two. The data that was available for that one location indicated that office um, supplies were going to be about 25%, one quarter of the total purchases in a year. And so the, the only in information showing exactly what the entire picture was showed that that was probably going to be the case. But here, only 15 out of 200 items were, uh, were going to be office supplies. One area where the GSA protest is a little confusing is they count the number of items in the market basket, but then they compare that to the percentages of, of each category of item. And they're not obviously the same kinds of things. But in any event, it seemed that the market basket was not going to be representative. All right. So Office Depot protested, and what happened? Well, GAO looked at the the record and said, look, the market basket system you've got here uh, is not going to reasonably represent what performance is going to be like. So it's not a good basis for evaluation. We're going to sustain the protest, and GSA is going to have to dig deeper and try to find a better way of doing it. GAO suggested three things to get the additional data that GSA would need. One, GSA could look at its own information about sales under other schedules, uh, the office supply schedule, which is Group 75. It could go back to its customers, to some of these locations, and try to get additional supporting data from them. Or it could look at the one location that it does have good data, this one location where they have four PL contracts for both hardware industrial and office supply items and extrapolate from that. So those are the you know potential ways GSA could remedy the problem and, and do a better analysis. All right. So they had a deplorable basket, you might say, the GSA. Apparently so. Joe Petrillo is a procurement attorney with Smith Pactor McWhorter. Thanks so much. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows.
Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took uh, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? 
well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. So he thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emerald Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And 
a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in in federal service? And she said, "Uh, isn't that for old people? (laughs) I said, "Uh, (laughs) um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.